I don't think either of us ever had a plan. It was all just really spur of the moment life. When the restaurant opened, Alice asked me to be the pastry chef. And I said, yes, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'll try it. And I mean, Charles became what he became really by falling into all of these things at various times. And none of it was planned for sure. Welcome to the SIDCast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation. Every once in a while, you come across a fascinating couple who have lived a full life, lots of adventures, misdirections, zigzags, and then they get to a stage when they start to look back with something that we might call wisdom. My guests in this episode of the SIDCast are just such a couple, Lindsay and Charles Shear. Listeners of the SIDCast know I'm a big foodie and have had a few podcast guests from that world in the past and going to have a few more coming as well. For example, Oliver Kramer in episode 67 back in September talking about Mission Burritos in New York City and elsewhere. And Darius Mustafarian, the dean at Tufts School of Nutrition, a cardiologist who's really become one of the nation's leading experts on what healthy food really is. That episode also came in late September, number 69. Well, Lindsay and Charles Shear were there at the creation. And by that, I mean the beginning of California cuisine and the gigantic movement towards farm-to-table cooking, locally sourced products, and organic food. In other words, Lindsay and Charles Scher were part of the startup team of Chef Penny's Restaurant, the legendary citadel of simple fine dining made famous by Alice Waters. Naturally, I wanted to know all about that, and the Shears were accommodating. You know, Lindsay, it turns out, um, became the pastry chef at Chef Penny's for years and years, published books on pastries and I discovered this. I had interviewed her more than 10 years ago for research on Alice Waters for my book, Super Bosses. And Charles was involved in the actual running of the restaurant. And I think he was one of the board members of Chef Penny's right from the very beginning. So, uh, and these are not household names for most people unless you're in that circle. So it's really a great opportunity to talk to two, two people that have a particular perspective and insight and experience uh, that I think is really, uh, really interesting. And, you know, you'll hear in this episode that Charles is quite the character trained in music, someone who's hiked the Alps multiple times, engaged in creative work for pretty much his entire life. Lindsay and Charles are both now in their mid-80s. And unfortunately, Charles is not, not in very good health at this point. In fact, not long after recording this podcast, Charles had a stroke that unfortunately left him mostly paralyzed on his left side. Lindsay wrote me to share this news, and it does make you think what it's like to be living with death really at the door. Maybe we're all thinking about it more than we ever did because of COVID. You know, in Lindsay's note to me and also to many of their friends, she relayed what Charles asked her to share with friends and family. And he said, and I quote, I have no complaints. I've had 85 marvelous years of music, art, books, travel, and most of all, many dear and loyal friends. My life has touched others, I know, and I have been made a better man by these friendships. My life is full of love. That's a great note. Charles' note to his friends actually goes on to quote Fernand Pessoa, 
who wrote in Italian, La morte e la curva della strada, morir e solo non esser visto. And I know I did not read that very well, but hopefully my Italian friends will let me get a pass on that. I'll translate and share what this note means, what Charles said in this note to friends in a moment. But I just have to say a word about who Fernand Pessoa is, who is the person that um, this quote is attributed to. And not just about Fernand Pessoa, but about discovery. Because maybe like most of you listening right now, I never heard of him. But when you start Googling, you discover an entirely new world where Pessoa was seen as a genius, where upon his death at the age of 47, he was discovered to have left as a New Yorker described in a profile in 2017 the following. Among his belongings when he died was a large trunk containing more than 25,000 manuscript pages, the product of a lifetime of nearly graphomaniacal productivity. As Richard Zenith, one of his leading English translators, has written, Pessoa composed, quote, on loose sheets and notebooks, on stationery from the firms where he worked, on the backs of letters, on envelopes, or on whatever scrap of paper happened to be in reach, end quote. This cache of documents, which now resides in Portugal's National Library, contained enough masterpieces to make Pessoa the greatest Portuguese poet of his century. Portuguese poet, writer, literary critic, translator, publisher, and philosopher, one of the most significant literary figures of the 20th century, one of the greatest poets in the Portuguese language. And here's the translation of that quote that I just read. Quote, death is the bend in the road. Dying is only not being visible. It may be two weeks before I go around that bend. It may be a few months. I hope I get there before any of you. And if you look carefully, you may see me with my stick, trudging happily along in countryside more tranquil than what we're in here. You are my family, but I love you anyway, very much. That's what Charles Shear wrote with Lindsay translating or conveying that to friends and family. So this is, um, this is a different type of episode. It's positive, it's happy, it's insightful, it's loaded with wisdom. But, you know, as I re-listen to it in the back of my head, I know that it's about a couple, and especially Charles, that is getting to the ultimate crossroad. I hope you enjoy this episode of the Sidcast. I hope you get a lot out of it and learn a little bit more about Lindsay and Charles here. Welcome to the Sidcast. It's Sid Finkelstein, and my guests today are Charles and Lindsay Shear. Hello, both of you. Hello. Good morning. Good morning. Where are you right now? We're in our house in Healdsburg. In Healdsburg. In Sonoma. Northern California. Yeah, that's Sonoma County. I've been to Healdsburg. It's very beautiful. Yeah. But I wonder about the fires going on. Are they anywhere near you? Yep. They're too close. And if you see a lot of junk around you, you will see things that we've gotten ready to evacuate with. There was a question earlier on, but so far today, it seems like the fire is going somewhere else than here. So, Have you already had to evacuate this year? Yep. Yep. We evacuated, what, a month ago now or less than a month ago, maybe? We evacuated for lack of electricity. Well, and because of serious smokiness yes. and... And we were in a warning zone, so. Right, right. How did that feel to, had to be scary for sure. Um, although fires oh, are far from unknown in California in the last few years, especially. But how did that, how did that feel? It feels pretty awful. I mean, especially in the middle of all of the other stuff that's happening. You know, the coronavirus stuff and 
it's just disorienting to say the least. I mean, yeah. it's been a very strange time here and everywhere else, I think. Right. Yeah. We are going through a time of significant challenges on multiple fronts. I just to say the least. <laughs> From climate, well, the climate change issue and problems have been going on for a long time, but I think it's becoming clearer and clearer what some of the penalties are now to politics, to health, to just society as well. You both have backgrounds and maybe even grew up in Berkeley, spent time in Berkeley. I mean, you're still in Northern California. Were you part of the movement back in the 60s in Berkeley? <laughs> you're laughing. I guess you were. <laughs> you couldn't live in Berkeley without participating. Yeah. At the time of the FSN movement, Charles was working at KPFA, you know, the listener-supported radio station, and they were really in the thick of what was going on. And he should explain to you what he was doing then. Yeah. So FSN is the free speech movement? Free speech movement. Yeah, right. right. So what was happening, Charles, at that time? Well, I was working for a nonprofit radio station whose news department covered, of course, the demonstrations and the politics behind the events that were, were going on. The free speech movement was a response to the universities clamping down on, well, rights to assemble and speak, at least as we saw it. I'm sure there were people who saw it from another point of view. <laughs> but that was how we met David and Alice and... Uh, you should explain. The radio station I worked for was a subscription station. I don't know if at Dartmouth you have a similar radio station. In New York City, of course, there's, what is it, WBAI? Yeah. Yeah. But there is or was a nationwide network of listener-supported FM stations who broadcast basically cultural programming. Charles was the editor of The Folio, and that was a... The program guide. The program guide, which was published every two weeks, right? Yes. Printed at a print shop around the corner from our house that was run by a printer named David Goines, better known as a poster artist, I think. And he lived with Alice Waters down at the end of our block. We used to go down there for supper. Alice would make crepes or something of the sort. And then we would come up to our house for dessert and thus was invented Chez <laughs> So, uh, obviously, I have a lot to ask you about that, but I just want to ask about how you think the current environment and world, let's say America, is like now, as you said earlier, with all of the issues and really calamities that are afflicting America right now, how that compares to what you lived through 50 mm -hmm. years ago. I've thought about 1968 particularly a lot and, and what happened in the 60s in Berkeley and all over the country. And I think, in a way, this is a reprise almost, except it's even more extreme now. I mean, we had all those murders of political leaders and the uprisings in Chicago. So many things that happened that I'm not sure people realize exactly what that felt like then. But it feels in a way similar, but in a way even worse, because I think then we thought that the political system was working reasonably well in the end. And, you know, the 70s came and, and the hippie movement and all of those things. That was when the restaurant opened and things seemed to be 
relatively good. It seemed like times were changing and the world was changing for the better in many ways. And now I think we realize that that's not really how it worked and that Reagan was in the works and all of the things that have come to a head now, I think were put in motion by the early 80s. So it seemed like there were relatively good times all those years that the restaurant was prospering and its influence was growing. And I always used to think that the restaurant business was a really safe business to be in because mm-hmm. people always had to eat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah. now I'm, I'm learning differently. <laughs> no, it turns out to be quite a extremely difficult. It's, I think it's always been kind of a difficult industry because well, so many restaurants come and go and you know, you look at a chef panisse that's been there. How many years is that? 50 years? Something like that, 50 right? 50 years this yeah. year, yeah. That's pretty unusual, I think, in the restaurant world. And obviously today with COVID, so many restaurants have closed. and It's unclear yeah. how that's all going to come back. So Chef Panisse started, in a sense, just with some friends. And Alice wanted to open a restaurant. I mean, did she come to you one day and say, I'm going to do this a bit more formally, not just us having dinner we together? We used to talk frequently about opening a restaurant. And- yeah. And finally, somebody said, you've been saying this for a long time. We found a building. (laughs) Go do it. Let's do it. Let's do it. Ignorance was really important at that point. Well, I mean, most of us had absolutely no experience in the restaurant business. Alice at least had, because she'd been a waitress. And she had some idea of what restaurants were like. But at that time, you know, there were not very many restaurants in the first place. There wasn't a restaurant on every corner. So it was a lot easier probably for a bunch of know-nothings to get started that way. And what motivated, what motivated her was conviviality. The point of the restaurant was not so much to have a place to serve menus of interesting dishes, as it was to provide a place for people to assemble, you know, in a convivial fashion. Berkeley in the 60s was still a liberal arts community. And Republican. To a great extent. Yep. That's not at all what people would expect or that I expected, actually, given Berkeley's reputation. Yeah, but it was was a very rock-ribbed, sort of liberal, you know, as Republicans often were in those days, especially in college towns, probably. Are you saying that the community was more Republican, but use the word liberal in connection with Republican, I think you just said, which is a very foreign yeah. language in 2020. <laughs> yeah, no, it is. But I'm, Well, Earl I Warren that- was the poster boy. I think of Berkeley at that time as a community of insurance salesmen. The mayor, for example, was a very conservative man. But as I say, it was a it was a college town. It was still motivated by a concern for the liberal arts, for the humanities. Yeah, and I think it was more like Northeastern Republicans, you know, at that time and later until pretty recently. Yeah, it is uh, quite interesting to see how the center of gravity for political parties shifts over time. And I think maybe the Republican Party, that shift has been quite a bit more extreme than the Democratic Party. Although, you know, if you go look at the South and the history in the South, the Democratic Party was really very supportive of tradition and conservative values in the South. And it was Lyndon Johnson that broke with it with some of the civil rights legislation, which I think since that time, the South is mostly Republican territory. 
it's quite interesting that that's happened. So Alice talking and talking about opening a restaurant, finally it starts to happen. And so Lindsay, did you start working there right away? Because you became the pastry chef and a very renowned pastry chef at that. But did you start right away or is this something you helped out? Or? Yeah. Oh, I started right at the beginning, the yeah. very first day. Mm-hmm. When the gas was turned off to the ovens until three o'clock in the afternoon. And it was a crazy, crazy time, definitely. When did you start doing the desserts and pastry? It was August 28th, 1971. You started being really a the pastry chef, maybe doing a lot of other yeah. things too, but especially that right from the beginning. Yeah, right from the very beginning and knowing really nothing about what I was doing. Well, that's what I'm getting at here. How did you do that? How did you pull that off? (laughs) Well, I mean, I had been baking since I was nine years old, I think. I'm the oldest of five girls. And so at a certain point, I think my mother needed some help, probably. Mm -hmm. I suspect that's how I got started. But I I was fascinated by it, and I always used to bake for breakfast on weekends and that sort of thing when I was a kid. And later, I did a lot of baking, especially in high school, when one of my sisters complained that she had to eat all these cakes all the time. (laughs) But it was also something that, that you could do if you didn't have a lot of money. You know, it didn't require meat and didn't require expensive ingredients. Mm. And so that was something that I could do that. And I guess I was just interested. I don't know. It's a strange thing to think about. Yeah. So So doing it as a starting the age of nine and become something you know how to do and something you presumably like to do a lot. But I still have to ask, you know, from being, say, I'm going to say a naturally talented home baker to winning a James Beard Award years later for pastry, the best pastry chef in the country. It seems like there's a little bit of space in between those two. uh, (laughs) And I'd like you to help us understand that. (laughs) There was a lot of trial and error, you know. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think there was also a certain intellectual interest that you had that you're not thinking about at the moment um, in terms of reading of, you know, the Julia Child influence, the... Well, I mean, that is one thing that... French culture and all that sort of thing. At a certain point, when Charles left KPFA, he went to work at KQED TV in San Francisco. And that was about the time that the Julia Child series started. And that was a really fascinating thing. And I had given my mother a gourmet cookbook when I was in high school, I think, as a birthday present. She didn't love cooking particularly. I mean, she was a person from Wisconsin whose parents had been German immigrants. And so her sauerbraten stew, things like that were what she cooked. And somehow, maybe I thought she needed dessert all the time. I don't know. (laughs) I think you thought she needed a cookbook. (laughs) (laughs) But I thought she needed a cookbook. And that was, I think it was when you were gourmet cookbook was first published, in fact. And I think I was a French major in in high school and and a French minor in college. And so I was interested in things French. And, of course, food was a serious French interest. And I read a lot of cookbooks. And I think that was a tremendous influence in those days because 
there weren't restaurants you could go to and we didn't have money to travel. We were very poor because those nonprofit organizations did not pay well. And we had three children by 1963. And so we were really scraping along. Did you, you mentioned Julia Child. Did you meet her along the way? Yeah, briefly at the restaurant, but that's all. You know, she went to the restaurant. When, it was when she was quite old. Yeah. She went to the restaurant as a customer, as a diner, or just? Yeah. No, as a customer. Yeah. That I don't know. Been. I think she and Alice always had some little friction between them. I'm not sure. Well, she went also out of curiosity, intellectual curiosity. I mean, she was interested in, she was interested in other professional cooks, mm-hmm. Pepin and people like that. And, and she was always, she, you know, she was fond of Alice. I think she was interested in her. I remember her asking if you ran into Julia Child someplace, she would always ask you, well, how is Alice? How is she doing? How's the restaurant doing? And she would ask questions like that out of concern, out of, you know, out of a real friendly concern for the well-being of the people and the institutions. She was also a friend of James Beard's, right? Julia Child was. I'm not sure that they were particularly close. I don't, I don't have that feeling. But, you know, she knew everybody in the food world. Yeah. And, and yeah. everybody was interested in her, her influence, you know, because it was incredible. And don't forget, she was a, <laughs> she was a spy. I mean, it was her <laughs> modus operandi to, uh, to be asking questions and how is so-and-so doing? How's the business? What's happening in Berkeley? That sort of thing. These were matters of real intellectual interest to her. It's interesting when I think about the way Julia Child cooked, which is the classic French cookbook, and Alice yeah. Waters, and everyone is part of Chef Panisse, which there might be some technique, French technique in there, but there isn't all the heavy sauces. And, you know, it's all about, as everyone knows, you know, natural, local sourcing of ingredients, pure ingredients. You know, you watch some of those old shows of Julia Child, or you read some of the cookbooks, or you go to France and still go to three-star Michelin restaurants. I know you both are kind of obvious being in the food business for a while. Foodies, the difference from the California style that Alice was, if not the, was certainly one of the creators of California cuisine, uh, is gigantic. It's really, I mean, do you agree with that or am I missing something? You can't can't ignore the importance of women in this discussion. Chepanese has always been, has always centered on women, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. I think the fact that we had a preponderance of women in the kitchen made it a really different kind of place. It was not a male chef-driven kitchen, and it was always a sort of consensus-driven kind of menu. We have menu meetings every week to plan menus, and everyone had input into them. And in the downstairs kitchen, every day there was a meeting to talk about the menu of the day and who was going to cook what dish and what they were going to be using and if they had to do something different from what was up the weekly menu. So I think the fact that it was a consensus-driven kitchen really meant that it was also a a much more democratic place than, than a lot of kitchens, completely different. And I always think of the cuisine as being what I call cuisine bonne femme, sort of a farm wife cuisine rather than anything approaching three-star cuisine. Although, I mean, at a certain point, we 
definitely learned classic methods, etc. I mean, you can't cook a different menu every day without learning a huge amount. It's so different from having a set menu. You know, it's just a whole horse of a different color. You know, you're raising a lot of really interesting issues and points. First of all, on this idea of a separate menu every day, of course, that's what you see in the Michelin three-star restaurants or any Michelin star restaurant yeah. to some extent. It's not a set menu. And if people think about that, I mean, that's a big job to do because you're mm -hmm. actually, I'm going to use the word force, but it's not the right word because you do it on your own. You want to do it, but you're, uh, you put yourself in a position where you have to create and that raises the degrees of difficulty to be sure. Uh, and then, you know, Charles also highlights that this was a, a female-run restaurant, the role of women, and obviously Alice and Lindsay and, and others. And you contrast that to so many things we've also heard about, or at least have come to the fore in the last, let's say, two or three years with some pretty famous chefs being caught out and doing some very wrong things, and it's cost them their empire, some of them. And this is yeah. all becoming known now. It's really, and it's not that this is a new thing, I'm sure that was going on forever, but it's just being found out or, or recognized and recognized something that's not acceptable anymore. It's quite a sea change really in the culture of, of the kitchen and the restaurant. In some ways, yeah. you know, you're describing a chef panisse is, is actually yet again, another form of influence in the modern kitchen, not about the food, but about the culture and the management almost of how you run a kitchen, how you run a restaurant. Yeah, it's true. And, and I just read this morning about another French chef who committed suicide because he, he was apparently accused of um, sexual improprieties. And he was a, a Michelin star chef. So another one, you know. Yep. Yeah. Now, Charles, I know you're on the board of directors, I guess, of Chef Panisse. Did you start helping to run it or oversight or just you were one of the close pals that were part of it, along with Lindsay. What was your role in the early days in running Chef Panisse and what Chef Panisse ended up becoming? I think oversight is the word. The restaurant is owned by a corporation. The corporation, like any California corporation, has a board of directors, which is responsible for all the fiduciary matters, making sure the place doesn't go, go broke, which has been kind of tricky this last year. <laughs> I understand. Although I'm no longer on the board, I, re I retired from the board three years ago. People ask what the function of the board is, and the joking reply has often been to protect the restaurant from Alice and Alice from the restaurant, <laughs> uh, to guarantee each its independence. <laughs> and its fiscal continuity. Continuity, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. But the restaurant at the beginning was not run by a corporation. It was run by a group of people who were the principals, the head waiter, the pastry chef, the chef, etc. And that was a, a group that met once a week to do what had to be done administratively. And I think it was 1976 that it was incorporated finally. It sort of evolved from what had been the operating group to a group of people that was composed of the main lenders to the restaurant when it started, the people who actually invested money, and the other people were the working partners, so mm -hmm. the, the head waiter, the head chef, the pastry chef, etc. Who invested sweat equity. Yeah, and so we were given our shares 
because of our involvement in the years that we had put in. I mean, I made $3 an hour when I started, for example. Right. And it was Alice's intuitive, well, a combination of generosity and, yeah. and practical management intuition that decided that the restaurant would be divided among the principal workers and the former investors, the former limited partners, the investors, yeah. yeah. And generosity has really been a watchword throughout. I think that Alice's generosity has shown itself in so many ways, you know, in the way she treats guests, in the way she treats the people who work there, everything. I mean, she's a very giving person. And I think that's one of the one of the main reasons that the restaurant has been as successful as it has. I was going to ask you about that. There's not a lot of restaurants have been around for 50 years. And then to have that degree of influence, when did Champagne's become something people, at least in the foodie industry, outside of California, we're talking about? It's been a long time, as far as I could tell, that it's known around the world in the food industry. But when did this start to become something more than a neighborhood hangout restaurant? I would say when James Beard wrote that column for the Times, I guess it was the Times. I don't, I don't remember what it was for. I mean, James Beard came to the restaurant well, I think when Jeremiah was the chef, right? Probably. I mean, in the relatively early years. And I don't know, we had some very hard times in those first years with, you know, 20 diners coming to dinner, etc. But I think pretty early on, it was recognized that the restaurant was doing something different from what mm-hmm. other people were doing. And it started being written about by people beyond the Bay Area. It's hard to remember, though. I, I mean, I could probably look back through clippings and firm this up, but I don't right. know. It wasn't in the first couple of years, but it also didn't take 10 years. It was in the 70s. That no, 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 no. It, it took maybe three or four years. Yeah. And I'm trying to think. We used to participate in the, oh, what was it called? The thing at Rockefeller Center. Oh, Meals on Wheels. And I'm trying to think when that that first one was. And I think that was in the late 70s then. Alice has always been attracted to the press. The press is always, (laughs) you know, because she's small and cute and feisty. And and the press has been attracted to her, you know. (laughs) Yes. Right. But you still have to have something different. You have to have, otherwise it's just a, it's a flash in the pan, literally and figuratively, and people stop talking about it. But people have been talking about this for decades. So it's got it's to have something. And I find it interesting that there's this little outpost, this small restaurant created by some counterculture people in Berkeley that is doing some different things and gets discovered. And the creativity is recognized and valued. And I wonder how many other organizations or people, and never mind if it's in the food business or not, could be in anything, maybe even right now are toiling away whatever it is they care passionately about, and they've not been discovered, and maybe they don't even care about that. Uh, but this is an example where she and you were all discovered relatively early, and it became this kind of gigantic thing with all the books and the influence. I mean, the influence of Chef Panisse and Alice Watt is really kind of mind-blowing because it's still there today. I've talked to a lot of chefs for various things that I've done. And so often they're talking about Alice Waters. They're talking about Chef Panisse. Three-star Michelin chefs from France coming on a tour to the U.S. 
they will go to Chef Penny's. It's a must. And once when I asked one of them, I said, why? I said, well, I want to know how America eats. I want to know how Americans think about food. I want to know what American food is. Uh, did you see that? I mean, what do you think? <laughs> well, it's one Maybe kind of Maybe they should American go to the food. cheesecake factory. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's say how America should eat. Let's add that, <laughs> change the yeah, verb. Maybe, maybe that's more like Well, don't you think, too, that a part of the original reclam was due to California and Berkeley? Both of them acknowledged, sometimes unwillingly, I think, but still acknowledged as being sort of leaders, sort of pointing what the future is going to be, where where things are going. Well, that was also, I think, in the heyday of the University of California, you know, when it was still affordable. I mean, it cost me $31 a semester to go to Cal in the mid-50s, for example. And when you think about that compared to now, it's horrifying. And two ninety five dollars to eat dinner at Chapinese. No, $2.95. $2.95. <laughs> Let's be clear about that. <laughs> $295, not unusual for high-end restaurants. <laughs> Today. But also, I, one thing is that I think Alice has continued to learn over these years. I mean, she doesn't stop at this point and, and stay there. She's constantly yeah. moving and I think that's really important, you know, and that was something about the restaurant that we were all constantly trying to learn more about what we were doing and why we were doing it. And I think that's a real energizer, I guess. I think it was also the beginning of the rise in interest in nutrition. Yeah. And Alice never made it a secret that she was concerned about that and that the restaurant would always be concerned about that. So the early success of the restaurant owes something, I think, to the fact that health and nutrition were very much in the news all that time. Yes, but remember, this is nutrition, Diet. health and nutrition, that actually tastes good. Alice's delicious revolution. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it tastes good. Well, let me ask you one more question, or actually two more questions about Alice and your days there and your experience there. One is if there's a, an Alice story that you could share for people. So much has been written about her, obviously, but you were, you were partners, you were there, you saw everything there is to see. Is there an Alice story, Charles or Lindsay, maybe each have your own or one uh, that you could share? <laughs> Probably have dozens, but if you were to pick <laughs> any Alice story to share with our listeners. I don't know. There are so many things, but one of the stories about Alice is that she doesn't like cake. Or coffee. <laughs> or coffee. pastry chef. Yeah. And so if I was always trying to work around that. I mean, you have to have cake on the menu. If you have a restaurant and you're making dessert, you have to have at least one cake on the menu. It was such a push-pull warfare with her to try to find something that she actually liked and, <laughs> and would eat. And now I guess there are a couple of cakes that still stay on the menu that are Lindsay's this and Lindsay's that. And <laughs> I consider that a win. <laughs> That's not really a story because I can't think of any particular incident. But I remember once in New York City... Oh, God, yes. Being told, not asked, <laughs> to go get some... Some lemon trees. Lemon trees. Right? <laughs> because Alice wanted to dress up the booth 
that she had at Meals on Wheels at Rockefeller Center, and she decided, or somebody decided, that some lemon trees in pots would would give it what it needed. In New York City. Yeah. Yeah. In May. So I was, <laughs> I was I was kind of proud of myself because I figured out what to do was to jump into the nearest yellow cab and ask the cab driver to take me someplace where I could buy some lemon trees. <laughs> and he immediately did that and everything worked out just fine. I, uh, I got the lemon. Fortunately, I had a piece of plastic in my wallet and I got the lemon trees and Alice was happy with them. And at the end of the night, when we struck the set, I took the lemon trees back to where I'd bought them and they graciously returned my, my money and took the trees back. <laughs> that's, yeah. a good, that's a good deal. But who in the world has lemon trees in New York City for sale? Yeah, I don't remember. Indeed. It was some nursery down on 3rd Avenue somewhere. Well, it goes <laughs> to show you in New York, you can get anything pretty much. <laughs> yeah. yeah, really. All you need is a yellow cab. <laughs> if you know who to ask. Yeah. Right. And I have to translate, of course, for younger listeners yellow cab means the way people used to take taxis before <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, well, one more true. thing <laughs> one more thing about alice which is i don't know whether alice is retired or going to retire will never retire but we do know that not everybody lives forever what will happen do you think to chef pennies it's so closely associated with her name her brand if you will and yeah. that's not the only person you know for some restaurant what what will happen can it continue Well, that's the question, I think. Yes, it can continue because the human race can continue. But that's a question that I've thought about for many years. Yeah, I think, well, I think we all have, and I I know Alice has. But it's something that the board is wrestling with constantly because I don't think Alice is likely to give up much as she says she would like to. She's not able to. And she did have an aunt who lived to be 102, so. (laughs) (laughs) Who's held in front of us as a threat. (laughs) Yeah, it's a big question, you know. Yeah, it's a question that I know others in the restaurant industry think about, where restaurants associate with this one person. Oh, yes. it's And not only restaurants. And there are restaurants that have been moved down through families, one or two in San Francisco, maybe Fanny will take over one day. Who knows? It's very hard to imagine, though, how one person would be willing to take on what Alice has taken on. I mean, you have to be tremendously driven to do that, I think. Yeah. And, and then any, any change you make uh, is scrutinized yeah. nowadays by yeah. all kinds of foodie people and magazines and journalists and all of the websites. It doesn't sound like a particularly easy transition if and when it ever happens for anyone no. who want to do it. No. Your field is leadership. That's your and what I wonder is what is it that leads the leaders? What force is it that not so much motivates them as energizes them, as stabilizes them so that they can continue doing what they do? There are not a lot of people in the category of an Alice Waters doing the same thing for 50 years at a pretty high level. But there are others. You see entrepreneurs, for example, in other fields uh, that do this. And, they're, and how, do they, yeah, how do they proceed? You know what happens? Do- Most of the time there's a company and they hire lots of other people as a company grows. 
and they start to groom people to take over. That doesn't yeah. happen to everyone because some people won't want to give it up. There are examples where that happens and it, the lack of transition is a problem. But, you know, if you think about, say, Ralph Lauren, another kind of legendary person in his field, who's been at what he's doing um, more than 50 years as well. And he has a very he has a big company and he doesn't run the company at all. He has a management team. And that's kind of what, what happens for, you know, in fashion, you have this one, the one name that also is famous. Look at Gucci and Armani. They've gone through multiple, to your point, Lindsay, multiple generations of their families that have mm-hmm. kept the house going in that respect. I think of Merce Cunningham and uh, ah. how they handled the transition when Cunningham died and the company closed. There was a lot of discussion as to whether it should close or not. If not, how it could continue and who could succeed him, who could, in a sense, replace him. Well, generally conceded at the time that nobody could replace him or succeed him. Mm-hmm. These are interesting problems. I mean, what happens at, for example, at Dartmouth? I don't know how whether Dartmouth has run the way the University of California has run. I think you have a chancellor who is in charge of the entire thing, right? And Yeah, I think Dartmouth and almost every university is an easy case compared to some of these others we've, we've been talking about, like Merce Cunningham or, or Alice Waters, in the sense that there's a board of trustees, there's a president of the university, the president gets uh, hired just the way a CEO would get hired. Right. Yeah, and it's a much more dispersed management. That's right. It's not based on the one personality. And those yeah, types of companies or organizations or institutions are really, really interesting. You see it in family-run businesses, for example. I mean, that's what Alice Waters' business is in a way. We don't quite say it that yeah. way. Or Ralph Lauren, for that matter. Family-run business. And are there children to pass it along to? Or do they sell to someone else who then runs that business with that older brand name? Does to- it go to Jared and Eric? or? <laughs> <laughs> Now, I know exactly what you're talking about, but I want this to be a PG-13 podcast, so I'm not going to respond to that. Can I ask you, both of you, how you guys are feeling and your your own health? I know you've been through a lot and accomplished a lot. Do you mind my asking that question? No. I mean, I'm fine. I mean, I just turned 85 in June, but Charles is not so fine. So it's a strange time. Yeah. I mean, we're both 85, and we've had... An extremely good and lucky life, I think. You've been married a very long time, haven't you? Yep, 63 years. Wow, I used to think I was old, but you're married longer than I've been alive. I got some (laughs) catching up to do to you guys. You asked about health. It's time for me to do my lung exercise. I do that by inhaling and exhaling. (laughs) (laughs) That's a very good exercise for all of us. You're doing. Yeah. Charles, have you... You know how people talk about bucket lists and all these things. You've, I was reading about your background, things you've done, both of you really, but travel the world. You hike through the Alps, maybe twice, yes. at least twice by my count. First of all. Well, what does through the Alps mean? I've walked from Geneva to Nice three times. What's that distance? Yeah, I should know it off the top of my head, but I'd say about 500 miles, 600 miles. It's a long six weeks walk. It's a lot of up and down. I would guess it would be. Why in the world did you do that? I read a book. I read a book (laughs) that made it sound interesting. And it's very beautiful and very centering. Well, it started with our, I mean, the book he read started in the north of the Netherlands on this this hike. 
-hmm. And so the two of us did several years of of walks just through the Netherlands. Which which is not so much up and down. No. (laughs) (laughs) And after that was when Charles decided he wanted to continue that hike, which went down through France and Italy and ended in Nice. So that was the genesis of that whole thing, I think. I highly recommend that that walk. <laughs> it's, a, it's a marvelous thing to do because of nature, because of humanity, history. A number of things all come together. Where would you sleep at night? Uh, you have your choice between mountain refuges, which are run by an alpine hiking club and which offer bedding and a hot meal and breakfast. Or if your walk takes you into a little town, then there's always a little hotel that you could stay or a B&B, something hmm. of that sort. That sounds quite a bit more uh, civilized than people that hike the yeah. Appalachian Trail, for example, which is near... Yes, you don't have to carry a tent and you, you don't have to carry a stove. Yeah. And yeah. You don't have to eat freeze-dried pasta. I mean, it's such a civilized way of doing it. and I mean, one of the reasons it started in the first place was we had a connection with a family in the Netherlands because our oldest daughter had lived there for a year as an exchange student. And we became good friends with them and started learning about things about the Netherlands. And one of the things that Charles came across was the book about these hikes. And that was really how it all started. And those people have been good friends of ours for I don't know, 40 plus years now. I mean, their son went into the restaurant business in the Netherlands and... Exchange students have played a big role in our family. Yeah. Um, You mean when they were going to school or visiting California? Yeah, we've had both of our daughters spent a year, each of our daughters spent a year as an exchange student, one in Denmark, one in the Netherlands. And we've had three foreign exchange students stay with us for at least six months, and in one case, a year. A year. Yeah. A French girl, a Brazilian boy, a Swedish girl. And they've been, and we've remained close to these people. I mean, they're yeah. basically indistinguishable from our own children. Mm. So I started asking you about the hike through the Alps, because I was remembering that from your background, having done that. Uh, but the category was under what people sometimes call a bucket list. I never knew that term. Do I have a are you asking if I have one? Or? <laughs> do you believe in it? Uh, do you have one? And if so, what's, uh, what's on it or what's been on it? I don't think I believe in it and I don't think I have one. I mean, it seems unnecessarily disciplined. <laughs> <laughs> That's a bad word. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you live a full and engaging life, your life is a bucket list and you don't have to make the list. So that's why when I asked you, you know, do you even believe in it? Because I don't actually believe in it. I won't do everything. Well, there are books I still haven't read, places I still haven't visited, you know, yeah. of course. But do I feel that they are imperatives somehow? Apparently not, because I haven't read them or gone there. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, it's always been really the most interesting thing at the moment, I think, that has driven him and us I mean, there's always something out there waiting to be discovered and enjoyed. So I think that's really been the driving force. It's an interesting way to think about navigating one's life 
Because on occasion I talk to, this comes mostly from students, young people who have in their mind, and sometimes their parents have in their mind a program or a programmatic, you know what I mean, series of stages in a life. You're going to do this by this age, and then you're going to do this, and then, then maybe get married, you're going to have kids or whatever, by this or this, which is fine, I guess, uh, and I'm going to have this career. And we do all those things if, if we want to do all those things. But then there's what I think you just alluded to, uh, Lindsay, which is, I don't know, much more organic way to think about it. It just kind of happens. And the yeah, opportunities yeah. to live emerge by being open to those opportunities. By looking Exactly. I don't think either of us ever had a plan, I have to yeah. say. I mean, it was all just really spur of the moment life. When a restaurant opened, Alice asked me to be the pastry chef. And I said, yes, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'll try it. And I mean, Charles became what he became really by falling into all of these things at various times. And none of it was planned for sure. So I can't imagine going to school, having decided that you're going to be this or that, mm-hmm. and then continuing on a, on a path like that. It just doesn't seem possible even. There are just too many things that can happen along the way. And of course, the whole problem these days is I think that it costs so much for people to go to school, on the other hand, that I'm sure they think they have to somehow use it and take advantage of it. So I don't know. It seems very difficult to be a young person these days, I think. Charles, what's your take on this kind of issue of navigating life in the ways that we've been talking about? My method has always been to try to have as open a mind as possible and be as attentive and responsive to events as possible and to enjoy things for what they are which sometimes is difficult <laughs> rather than complain about things because of what they are. Or yes, yeah. Nobody likes to listen to somebody who's always complaining. You know, the term mindfulness is a big term these days, but that's what we're talking about before anyone used that term. You know, mindfulness means, you know, being alert to the world around you, paying attention, living rather than thinking about living, maybe is another yeah. way to say it. I read a lot of Zen when I was in my 20s and 30s, and... And one of my heroes has always been John Cage and Merce for the degree to which they managed to combine an almost perfect open-mindedness and unwillingness to judge things on a comparative basis, to prefer things, but to remain open to what comes along and to enjoy it for what it is. Like four minutes and 33 seconds. Yeah, as an example, (laughs) yes. Try to find four minutes and 33 seconds of silence. Would have come in handy last night. The night before last. Yes, night before <laughs> last, during the debate. Four minutes, that's all. Wow. <laughs> could have been longer oh, than that. Like that yeah. So I feel like we could be talking about lots of different things for a long time, but believe it or not, we've been talking for almost an hour and probably scratched the surface of the various stories and adventures but I do want to give you a chance to, and Lindsay, you may recall, this is a question I'd like to ask all of the guests on the SIDCAST at the end of our conversation. And maybe you just kind of answer in a way, but I'll still ask. It's about advice for others, to others. But it's advice specifically, if you could imagine going back in time to your own lives when you were 21 years old. And Boy, if you could hard. 
I know that's hard, and you'll answer it any way you wish to answer it. But don't marry him. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> if you can go up to your 21 year old self and say, if there's one thing you should do or not do or think about, there's one bit of advice I have for you. This is it. What advice would you give yourself at the age of 21 if you could magically go back? Well, for me, I think it would be to follow your heart. You know, don't let your mind get in the way of, you know, don't let the usual considerations of life and what you have to do, you know, get in the way of doing something that you really love to do or want to do. And that's a hard one, I think, for a lot of people. I think so many people get stuck in jobs they hate, etc. And if they were just somehow free to do something that they love to do, no matter what, mm -hmm. you know, that would really be the way to live. And we've been lucky to be able to do that, I think. Much yeah. luckier than most people, probably. Yeah, that might be. And before I, I ask you, Charles, I just want to say one thing about what you just said, Lindsay, which is there are many people I've met over the years that do whatever they do, and they're looking forward to retirement when they can do what they want. I didn't recognize this when I was younger, but you know, for some time I have recognized it as a very, very sad situation that you have to wait until you retire to do something that you want to be doing. Yeah, that's sad. Um, Definitely. And, you know, we've been really lucky to be able to do that, I think. Yeah. It doesn't perhaps work all, all that well for everyone. But I think at least if, if you do that, you have a satisfaction that you wouldn't have otherwise. Lucky, but we've also lived frugally. Mm. Our enjoyments have been basically inexpensive ones. But to be able to travel the way we have has not been... Well, All that inexpensive. You save a lot of money by walking. <laughs> <laughs> you save a lot of money by walking. <laughs> Charles, do you have some advice to your 21-year-old self? Read, keep a journal, learn languages, take care of your health. That's pretty good. I think they're all important. Be patient. Yeah. <laughs> Be patient with your spouse. <laughs> <laughs> She's doing the best the, she can. I have the feeling if that if I let the tape run, you're going to keep going with one after another of bits of advice. <laughs> no, but that's something I think about because, of course, we have grandchildren in their 20s and early 30s. And, and so you, you think about what kind of advice should we be giving them and mm. should we not be giving them? Hard to know. Hard to know, especially in today's world. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to give very specific advice. I mean, you could, but both what you said is philosophical, which to me at least means and it's more about people, about humans as humans, which means it's more long-lasting. You could start by letting them listen to this uh, podcast when it's all <laughs> done and say, if you want to talk to me some more about any of that, make an appointment and I'll be ready for you. <laughs> 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 Charles, Lindsay, Cher, thank you again for being on the podcast. Thanks for all the work you've done over the years. It's been rewarding. It's been our pleasure. Yeah. yeah. Wonderful. Wonderful. Okay. Be well. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the SITCAST. I am really excited to be bringing you season two and very appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode. 
If you haven't already, please subscribe to the series so you'll never miss a single new episode. I welcome all feedback and would love to hear from you. If you have any questions, suggestions for guests, or any suggestions at all, please contact me via our website, www.thesidcast.com, or you could email me directly at sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune into another one of our episodes, and please give us a five-star review and share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The Sidcast is produced by the podcast Laundry Company. See you next time.